0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is Wednesday, February the 15th, 2023. We're trying to historicize the moment we're living in, and we've done a number of shows on artificial intelligence, and it seems as if we're on the brink of the AI age, particularly in terms of chat GBT. So the interesting question becomes what came before our AI age? I think one argument might be that between about 2000 and 2023, 2022, perhaps 2024, We lived in the age of social media, in the age of blogging and and social networking, and one man who lived through it and defined it in many ways is my guest today, Glenn Reynolds. He's a big-time law professor, but many of you will be more familiar with him as Instapundit.com, one of the great bloggers and commentators online, and I'm thrilled that Glenn is joining us from uh, his office. Where are you, Glenn, right now? I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, Do you ever think of yourself as Instapundit? Is there a a problem between Glenn Reynolds and Instapundit? You got your law degree at Yale. You're a very serious legal scholar. And at the same time, you're one of the big online social media troublemakers.
1: Well, it's uh, different sides. Everyone has different sides to their personalities. And uh, I have some of both. Glenn, do you remember the moment when you realized that
0: you could become Instapundit, when it became clear that you the internet was uh, a self-publishing tool?
1: I actually do. Um, I used to be a very active participant in the discussion forums on Slate.com back in the old days when that was edited by Michael Kinsley and run by Microsoft. And they had a really great online discussion forum, which is an accomplishment, as we know. Uh, But I was there. I posted under A couple of screenings: AG Android, which was my techno producer name, and Instapundit was another. And of course, that term was already around all these people who sort of popped up on the new cable news channels during the Bill Clinton impeachment, were sort of collectively referred to as Instapundits. And I would use that sometimes when I was trying to mock a sort of a quickie take on stuff. Uh, Then there was a Slate scandal. Uh, No one will remember this, but the monkey fishing scandal, in which one of Slate's writers, was taken in, I believe, by some Cajun who persuaded him that there were monkeys that lived on an island in the bayou somewhere that people would catch by uh, basically flinging hooks into the trees and reeling them in. And so there was a blog produced called Monkey Fishing, which was on the Blogspot hosting thing and with Blogger. That was the first time I discovered Blogger. So I followed the link to Monkey Fishing, and I saw it, and I was like, huh, I can set this up in like 15 minutes. And so I did, and it really did take less than 15 minutes to start a blog uh, on Blogger back then. And it was just very easy. And so I started posting stuff. And I had I I taught internet law, so I kind of tried to be active doing new stuff on the internet. And this was a new thing to do. So I did that. And I really didn't think I'd do it for longer than a semester or two, but uh, it kind of caught on. I mean, it was more of a lighter pop culture-y feel initially. But then after, I'd only been on for a little over a month when the 9-11 attacks happened and things got more serious. So you said so this was political. in
0: 2000, Glenn? Oh, I'm sorry? It was in 2000.
1: It was 2001. 2001. And uh, summer of 2001. My first post was on, I believe it was August 8th, 2001, something like that. And it was, you know, things became much more serious. And I sort of realized I just sort of did what I could do. I I had a post the morning of 9-11 after this happened that uh, said that this is going to lead to calls for new bureaucracy, which will not help, and uh, for people to surrender civil liberties in ways that have nothing to do with what's happened. Unfortunately, fairly accurate predictions. Um, And writing about this stuff, it got a lot of attention because a lot of the big media sites actually crashed under the pressure. And I was still up. Slashdot was up and people were linking to me and uh and so it got more attention my traffic uh, about quintupled from one day to the next and just continued to rise as i mentioned
0: you were you graduated from Yale law school top law school in america very hard place to get into why, why did you feel you had a need uh, you're a law professor you probably could call up supreme court justices if you wanted to what what was the need for a this, this fancy lawyer, Glenn Reynolds, uh, to law professor, to to, to commentate. Was there something in in you that, or was it something about the times?
1: Probably so. I mean, I'd done it before. I, I like, sometimes people tell these stories about me. It sounds like I, you know, put down my plow and picked up a modem when I started the blog. And uh, I had written op-eds uh, for years in various newspapers and stuff. Uh, I'd written other stuff, too. Um, when I was a student, I sold a piece on bills of lading to a seafaring magazine called The Compass because I needed the money. So, um, you know, I I was already writing. I'm sort of a semi-compulsive writer. And legal scholarship is great, and I like it, and I still do it, but it's only one kind of writing. And I think that uh, the other thing that was happening in 2001, my wife had had kind of a freakish heart attack a couple of years earlier, was still recovering, and my attention span was suffering. And I think blogging Was a good outlet compared to a Law Review article because it didn't require hours of extended concentration when I had a sick wife and a three year old. So that that was probably part of it too. How did 9 11,
0: you think, change the broader blogging culture? Was that the moment when blogging went mainstream?
1: Pretty much. I mean, there were blogs before that. Uh, Slate magazine, back then, called them me zines. The term uh, blog was just catching on. And they were, so the early pioneers like Rebecca Blood. Uh, there was Josh Marshall, Virginia Postrel, Mickey Kaus, Andrew Sullivan. Uh, and I sort of, when Slate added me to their little list of links, Zine Central, uh, I sort of felt like I'd made it. And that's like, that sort of the, was the end of the first wave of blogging, if that makes sense, which was right before 9-11. And at that point, there were sort of these cute little things that people did. And then after 9-11, they started to be seen as alternative media, uh, which I think was the big change.
0: And well, there's something about nine eleven as an event that it's obviously a great tragedy and a, a major moment in world history, certainly in American history. But there was something about the incident itself, the way it was reported, the semi-fictional quality that made it appear as if it was almost a movie when you were watching it online. We all remember, of course, where we were on nine eleven. 11 There's something uncanny about the medium and the message somehow coming together, isn't it, Glenn?
1: Yeah, well, I think the you know I know what I heard from readers was that they would rat, they came to my blog they wanted because they wanted to actually get pieces of information and they were tired of seeing the same video clip of planes smashing into the towers for the four hundred thirteenth time because as the cable news channels do they just reran the same stuff over and over again so it was simultaneously highly stressful and boring all at once which is something that only the cable news channels can pull off uh and it really and
0: still continue to pull that off i think
1: yes yes they've only gotten better at that uh but yeah you know, so i think people were looking for something new and different with a um and also you know i mean reading text is just i think inherently less stressful than watching video where people are shouting and acting excited at all and i think that was uh, good for a lot of people as well and i know i was sort of surprised because after i've been doing this not for that long i mean we're talking about like maybe a few weeks after nine eleven, 11 people started telling me how much it meant to them. And I was like, this is just this little thing I do on the internet. <laughs> it's not a free hosting site. you know." Uh, but they, they felt, I mean, one of the nice things about a blog is it does carry sort of a personal voice. And I think they liked that compared to the sort of more impersonal as well as more hysterical coverage uh, that you get uh, on cable news.
0: Did it also result in you thinking about yourself differently? You suddenly became, for better or worse, perhaps out of choice, perhaps not a public figure. Um, you became a more controversial figure. Did you do you or did you think of yourself differently as a consequence of all this?
1: Not all that much. Um, and it's, First of all, it's a matter of degree, really. I mean, uh, you know, I wrote scholarship that got me death threats before I ever had a blog, uh, You, which I was always like, wow, people read my law review articles. Nobody reads law review articles. This is great. But, um, you know, so, so it wasn't. But yeah, I mean, it is. Um, you know, it's it's different. Um, it's fortunate that I live in Knoxville because, in fact, you know, it's it's a very low key place. It's not a very political place. There are a fair number of people who read my blog around here. I, my daughter was, I took her to the emergency room once some years ago, and uh, I was very happy when the nurse looked up and said, I read your blog. And I was like, good, <laughs> good job. I, but it's not I, that I common. She's
0: not politically on the left. That might've been a bit, <laughs> a little bit uh, eerie if uh, if she was operating on you. You, you wrote, um, uh, I think it was in 2006, An Army of Davids, an interesting book. Was it An Army of Davids, Glenn, at least at the beginning?
1: It was, uh, to some degree, it still is, but I, the social media platforms like Facebook and especially Twitter and such uh, were almost look like they could have been designed to tame that, to take people from a self-organizing peer-to-peer kind of situation uh, into a walled garden where they're sort of managed and controlled and uh, where what they see is uh, filtered by algorithms designed to keep them agitated mostly. Uh, which I wrote about later in another book called The Social Media Upheaval. Uh, And and I miss it. I have to say, you know, I miss the early days of the blogosphere. There was so much more left-right comity. Uh, And I remember, in fact, I was talking to somebody about this the other day. Dave Coppola and I were in the comment section on the Daily Coast having a civil discussion of assault weapons with various lefty readers of the Daily Coast. And that was probably like 2002. And that really lasted until the run-up to the 2004 presidential election when everything broke down and it's just never been the same since. And that's probably true for American society as well. What do you think happened
0: in 2004? Why was that the case?
1: I mean, I have a variety of theories which are, I don't find entirely satisfactory. Um, There was... This was the the bush Kerry election. Yes. There was a lot of festering resentment among Democrats over the 2000 election. And I think a lot of people in the lefty blogosphere even said, don't worry about it. We'll take Congress back in 2002 and we'll get rid of Bush in 2004. And then the Republicans won the midterm election in 2002, which was unexpected. And then Bush got reelected. And I think that left a lot of people just with a lot of anger and no place to put it, Uh, but that's just a guess. All I know is that the tone changed a lot, Um, and uh, I remember even in the 2004 election cycle at one point being sort of just depressed about it and saying, well, maybe after the election I'll just fold up my blog, you know, but you say that all the time when you have a blog, but you almost never actually do it.
0: How often did you blog in those early days, in the the glory years of, of blogging? Pre- uh, two
1: thousand uh, and four. I probably posted about 50 times a day, which 50 that's probably Wait. right. Yeah. But,
0: but, but most of that were links or comments or a combination of the two.
1: Yeah. I mean, mostly links and comments. That's, you know, uh, I mean, I do original reporting sometimes and I even, you know, I've done it. Usually that's for some other platform but I've done it for the blog too, and posted photos, but it's called Insta pundit for a reason. I mean, it's, it, it is links and reactions and, um, Actually, it's interesting. My, I was going through my archives because we're trying to re- redoing the site uh, and, and fixing some archive issues. And I was surprised, even to me, I mean, I, I have the reputation of being pithy, but I was looking at stuff from 2003 and just how many of them were one line links to straight through. Uh, and, you know, a lot of that comes from readers. Readers email me stuff. That's still fairly true. Uh, and that's where I get a lot of my material is people send me stuff they think I'm interested in. Um, I used to refer to it as a system of distributed natural intelligence as opposed to AI. Uh, And it, you know, it it worked, works very well. Uh, I'm pretty happy with it. Uh, I didn't set out with any big goals. I didn't set out to get rich and I didn't set out to have a huge amount of influence uh, and I've achieved those goals. So it's great.
0: Did you have any aspirations for even generating any kind of, revenue from it i mean you you had your day job as a law professor so presumably you weren't out on the street
1: initially no now i'm happy to make some money out of it because uh i'm i'm now old it's been over 20 years since i started i you know retirement is no longer a distant concept and then you know periodically people try to get me fired for something i say usually not on the blog usually somewhere else
0: well you got thrown Uh, off twitter what in 2016 i
1: mean well that was a I didn't get thrown off Twitter. I was suspended briefly. Uh which is a, mar-
0: a badge of honor, I think. I wish I I think suspended. so. I did
1: go back for a while, but and and I say this now cuz everybody wants to are you going to be real active on Twitter now that Elon Musk owns it? It's like I have two problems with Twitter. I mean, I didn't like the old management. They were very partisan, I thought, and and very just unprincipled and unfair in how they banned people. And actually, what finally made me snap was they banned somebody and I was already doing the research for the social media upheaval. I'd learned a lot about the algorithms and how they're designed to manipulate you. And I was like, I didn't even like Twitter initially. I, I was a late adopter. But once I adopted it, I was nonetheless addicted to it. Uh, because it's very—it's it, like the crystal math of social media. And I found myself wasting a lot of time and getting myself agitated about a lot of stuff. So I was just like, screw it, I'm out. And now even with Elon Musk back, the partisan part's gone. And maybe, I don't know, maybe the algorithms are better or will get better. But fundamentally, I just feel like uh, it's primarily a place to issue a quip that will own somebody. uh, And that is not a great use of my time or my emotional energy, really. Twitter is, of course,
0: the platform of outrage of one kind or another. It's the worst of the
1: social media. It is the quintessence of what's wrong to greater or lesser degrees with all of them.
0: But, but back in the early days, the glory days, back in 2001 and one and two, was there the same kind of outrage? Were people always angry, always, always up in arms about one kind of injustice or another on the left or the right? Not as much at all. And it
1: was, I'm not sure. I mean, as late as the early years of this millennium, there was a certain amount of sort of bourgeois politesse, I guess, that was still among the people who are on the Internet. You know, the Internet kind of started out as being sort of an upper-middle-class playground. And there was a certain amount of that kind of, um, I don't know the right word for it, professionalism, uh, a a sense of sort of, you know, proper behavior. Uh, I mean, not always. Usenet, which was the old Internet thing that was closest to Twitter, was always a disaster, too, uh, full of flame wars and uh, so on. But generally speaking... What's a flame war, Glenn? A flame war is when people scream at each other at great length, and more and more people get sucked in. (laughs) That's an obsolete term, term I guess now. Um, But yeah, I think you know there was still a a residuum of of common courtesy, which gradually just baked out of the system.
0: And was this uh, a reflection of America itself? Do you think? Um, it's is, in terms of the mirror. Is it a, a two-way mirror? Does the internet look like America? Does America look like the internet? Or is, or, or was, what you were doing shaping the new America of the early twenty-first century?
1: I think it depends on what you mean by America. I mean, for example, you know, going about my life in Knoxville, I, I'm always shocked by how pleasant everyone is to everyone, uh, and that's even honestly that's even true when I'm in places like New York or Boston or L.A. for the most part. Um, I think, in fact, I I was driving back from Kansas through like uh, Southern Illinois and Kentucky and stuff back when we had one of the big racial uproars. I think it was the Ferguson riots Mm -hmm. or something. And I remember stopping at a fast food place. It was about half black and half white. And it seemed to me everybody was going out of their way to be extra nice to each other. uh, Perhaps in response to that, because it was all over the news then. And that's that's how. Actual America tends to be. Internet America is a whole different place, and it's it used to be a super fun, happy place. Uh, now it seems to be the place where people take the worst parts of themselves, and I do blame social media for exacerbating that. That trend was already happening. Uh, and also, I will say, just the portion of American, the American public populace that follows politics closely and cares passionately about them is not the nicest part of the American public. And, uh, you know, it—it it, it is people who tend to act out various emotional issues through politics to a significant degree.
0: You talked about your your trip uh, after Ferguson where you stopped at a fast food place um, and blacks and whites were going out of their way to be friendly to one another. Um, Post 9-11, I don't suppose you would have found a, a fast food place with some some Muslims and some Christian Americans. Uh, but do you think that blogging resulted in people respecting one another more in the real world? Or or, or are these two spheres so disconnected that maybe the internet doesn't, I mean, it's just fancy land, it's just Disneyland for politicos
1: like yourself? Well, to some, I mean, uh, blogosphere had some major impacts on a few things. Um, but the truth is, as a part of American society and culture, it wasn't that important. Even, even things, you know, big social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook have a lot less impact on normal people's lives than uh, people who use them a lot tend to think. Uh, And again, you know, if you're a journalist, you're on Twitter all the time. Twitter is beautiful for if you have five minutes to kill while you're waiting to get into a committee hearing on Capitol Hill or something. And so you're on it a lot and that makes you think it's important, but uh, we frequently have some big storm on Twitter and then when, you know, When it comes time for actual human beings to show up somewhere because of it, nobody does.
0: So you wrote the book, Social Media Upheaval. What was the upheaval? I mean, you wrote it about the platforms, the Facebooks and the Twinters and the Instagrams. How do you think social media changed America? What was the upheaval or what is the upheaval?
1: It did make us worse uh, to the extent it had an impact at all. It definitely did. And that's not by accident. It's because the algorithms select for engagement and engagement means emotional response and the easiest emotional response to trigger is anger. Number two is fear. So that means we have a system that is quite literally programmed to make us angry and afraid. And that's great for them. It gets lots of clicks and engagement and stuff. It's not so great for the users. Uh, and uh, you know, I sort of explored that, talked about it. I love that one of the consulting companies that are these algorithms is literally called Dopamine Labs. And uh, you know, it, the casino people also laugh because the techniques that social media companies use to hang on to and keep users engaged are the kinds of things that casinos use to keep people uh in, in their places and gambling. So it's it's a really, I think, overall pernicious. Thing and I, you know, and I'm not inherently against it. I mean, Jaron Lanier wrote his book uh, "You Are Not a Product," and I reviewed it for the Wall Street Journal. And I kind of disagree with him. And I said, you know, lots of people get a lot of good things out of Facebook. They, you know, reconnect with old friends and family and that sort of thing. And that is all true. They do all of that stuff, and that's great. And um, I'm glad that it does. But that is, I mean, Facebook doesn't operate so that you could reconnect with your old friends maybe it did once but now it operates to to get your data and sell it mostly uh and that and to sell ads and that's not that causes them to act in ways that are at odds with the things that make the product actually valuable to the users
0: jerome's book i think came out in 2008 2009 was there a year a moment Glenn, where there was i know you talk about the 2004 election, but in broader internet history, was there a moment where we transitioned between blogging and social media? Pivotable, uh, p- p- not pivotable, pivot pivotal moments, historical moments. Any years or months or events that come to mind?
1: I can't think of a specific event, but I would say that by 2010 or so, I felt obsolescent as a blogger. You know, previously I'd been on the cutting edge and got articles written about me in the, you know, Columbia Journalism Review and the New York Times and stuff like that. And uh, there was a point where I was just like, yeah, I'm kind of old news now. And then I was like, that's actually fine. <laughs> you know, I'm happy with that. But it was definitely about the, about that time that I was like, oh yeah, you know. And that, you know, that happens. I've been doing it for going on 10 years at that point, And you're not news after 10 years, it, almost anything. Uh, and you get older. I mean, I went... I was now much younger than I am now, but I went to a meeting on a university committee one time, and there were a bunch of deans there, and then there was me, and they were like, how do we do that? Ask Glenn. He'll know. He's been here the longest. And I was like, wait, that can't be right. I'm the young wunderkind. I'm not the old guy who knows stuff. And they were like, "Eh." (laughs) "So, I mean, that just happens with the passage of time. You come across uh, Glenn as
0: very genial, and, and your work also, I think, is pretty genial, but you probably wanted to be in the limelight. I mean, it, you weren't unhappy when the New York Times referred to you or, or when uh, NBC or ABC called you up for an interview. I mean, presumably some of it was a way of of, of enjoying being in the limelight.
1: Oh, it's fun to a degree. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have ideas I want to get out there that uh, I'd be foolish to do this if I didn't. And the way you get ideas out there is to be noticed and listened to. Um, So, you know, I, I'm certainly not, not going to be like one of these celebrities who complains about the fact that they can't go anywhere with privacy while their publicists are mailing out photos to the paparazzi. Um, You know, but at the same time, I didn't set out to be that much of a celebrity. And after, you know, several years of that kind of attention, it's kind of like the thrill is gone. You know, it's like there's the first New York Times profile looks pretty good, but there, there's a pretty quick diminishing return aspect to that sort of publicity. Uh, and as for getting my ideas out, I mean, I I have written a weekly column now for over 20 years, uh, starting with uh, Tech Central Station, which was actually a great website, and then the Washington Examiner, USA Today, now the New York Post. Uh, and I've started writing stuff on Substack too. And for some kinds of ideas, the longer form stuff, either the op ed format or the even longer form essay like on Substack is best. Uh, for other stuff, what a blog has is repetition when you have some theory of how things work you can go through day after day and point to something and say here it is again here it is again here's another example here it is again here it is again and that has its own communicative impact even if every time you do it it's sort of you know one entry with a tagline so um and it's not even always you know it's not even always political like i I do a lot of science stuff and one of my taglines is microbiome news, just because it turns out, you know, the the microbiome in your body is really important. There's always a new story about it. And so I keep calling attention to that. So that's the kind of thing a blog can do that you can't really do anywhere else.
0: Do you think it would be right to call these first two decades, two, two plus decades of the 21st century, a social media age? Or is that just a Silicon Valley conceit or a conceit of... Uh, bloggers and social media networking activists.
1: You know, I don't know. Um, I think it's. I think it's been important. I mean, I think Twitter in particular enjoys far more influence over sort of journalists and corporate management than it deserves. Because you know, you get a firestorm on Twitter, and they act like it matters, and it just really doesn't. Uh, you know, stuff that happens on Twitter doesn't affect your sales. It doesn't. It doesn't affect your bottom line. Uh, Twitter is bad for marketing when you put links on Twitter nobody follows them uh, so it's really kind of irrelevant but people think it's important because they see it a lot that's probably true to a lesser degree for all of this stuff it's not unimportant the single biggest thing the blogosphere ever did politically was in 2004 when Dan Rather was promoting the fake National Guard memos about mm-hmm. George W. Bush's service and they were exposed as fake they were exposed as having been done on microsoft word which did not exist in 1970 i think 1971 when they're supposed to be from and that really made a difference and that was a time back when the press would take a somewhat more objective look at questions like that that people now they just ignore it for the most part Uh, but that so that was sort of the peak of the blogosphere influence and uh there were other things of course trent Lott resigned before that because some bloggers including me Went after him for some remarks he made about Strom Thurmond and segregation, uh, but you know it's—I don't know how much. I, I had lunch with a famous columnist one time a few years ago who been writing a national column for a long time, and he was telling me people. You can't. Me you
0: you got to tell me his His or her name. You can't just talk about famous oh, columns.
1: Do, do I have to? I don't think I you should. You
0: do have to. Absolutely. Give me a clue. Did he have a mustache?
1: Man or woman? Um, he frequently is seen in a bow tie. At any rate, okay. <laughs> the, the point where he said, writing a national column is a great responsibility, but it would be a bigger responsibility if people listened to you once in a while, I think was what he said. And that's that's right. You know, you can write these columns week after week. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've written a column in favor of going back to the 18-year-old drinking age. And it's just like complete, I've, I've written like four of those, Wall Street Journal, USA, never never gets any traction. But uh, you think though, you would have got the
0: traction... Or do you get the traction if you tweet that or put it on Facebook?
1: People are harder to persuade than you think. I mean, it's really hard to persuade people, and it's especially hard to get people to actually take action even after you've persuaded them. Uh, and, and I think all kinds of media think that because you communicate an idea to people, you've accomplished something. But And you have, but you haven't accomplished nearly as much as you think unless they're actually inspired to do something about it. And most people are hard to get up out of their chairs doing stuff.
0: What happened with your particular Twitter mini scandal? It seems, these things s- seemed maybe pre masked to happen all the time. What did you do? What year was it? Well, that?
1: there were riots in Charlotte. There were actually riots a lot of places. I was just following the Twitter stream on the Charlotte riots, and there was a lot of violence there. Was that 2016? Um, yes. That was like September of 2016, before the election. And there were some reports that people were blocking a highway and that they were smashing windshields and pulling drivers out of their cars and looting trucks and stuff like that and I just sort of flippantly said run them down uh and uh, to hear the p- people acted like I was talking about running down peaceful lunch counter protesters uh as opposed to violent uh rioters but at any rate that's a lot of people complain I went to bed I didn't even know there was a scandal about it at the time I went to bed and it got mass reported by people on Twitter. When I woke up, my account had been suspended uh, and uh, they told me I had to delete the tweet to unsuspend unsuspended, uh, which I was reluctant to do. Cause I, I'm an archivist. I like, I, I don't hide stuff. I've said, I keep my archives all the way back to August of 2001 up. Uh, and, you know, so I actually, Copied the tweet and put it on my blog so I couldn't be accused of trying to hide it, but then I took it down to bring the account back.
0: Finally, uh, Glenn, um, how do you want to be remembered as Instagram? Maybe not as Professor Reynolds, but what legacy would you like future generations to remember about you? Legacy for a blog?
1: Honestly, that seems a bit um, full of itself, but um, if I have a legacy, I hope that, it's, uh, that I made some people feel more comfortable in stressful times and have a better handle on what was going on in stressful times and um, learn some things. That's basically it. And now with all this
0: AI, can an algorithm replace Glenn Reynolds and Instapundit? Can it learn how you think and what you say and simply churn out?
1: AI garbage of one kind or another? It's been tried already. Uh, A guy named Richard Bennett had something called RoboPundit, which was uh, supposed to scrape the news and produce Instapundit-like posts. Uh, But the technology gets better. You know, as I tell people about AI, the technology may not be very good now, but it gets better every year and people stay the same.